You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayless. Mark Allen is taking a very short sabbatical, so you're stuck with me for this intro. (laughs) Last decade, there was a big push within the environmental movement to encourage people to divest their banking away from the big bad four banks and to swap from their existing funds into one of the ethical super funds. At that time, I was living with one of the directors for the Melbourne chapter of 350.org and was involved in the divestment campaign briefly. I remember several hundred people, me included, meeting near the Melbourne Botanic Gardens to place ourselves in order to shape out the letters of the word divest that could be seen from the air and photographed by drones. It was a powerful gesture, and I am very happy about my subsequent decision to move away from one of the big bad banks into one that is far less psychopathic. (laughs) I am well aware that in the finance industry that ethical and environmentally aware are relative terms. However, I'm still mostly happy with my choice of Bank Australia. When it comes to superannuation funds, or Australia's version of a pension plan for international listeners, things become a lot more complex. Superannuation was introduced in the latter part of the 20th century, uh, which in my own opinion is a way of turning everyone into investors by gambling a portion of their income into the share market. In this way, everyone becomes a player in the growth-based private sector. There are quite a few ethical super funds now for the environmentally minded and cruelty-free super funds for the animal welfare minded. However, it is next to impossible to find any fund that doesn't invest in some of the large-scale property development companies such as Stockland or Mervac. These large development construction companies are responsible for a good proportion of the urban sprawl, urban consolidation and construction of new shopping malls that extend well beyond the horizon and into former green wedge urban boundaries. Ethical super funds often justify these companies by suggesting they have environmental plans that they may carry out in future. A more fundamental reason is that superannuation companies are probably legally obliged to include real estate or property within their portfolios. This obviously raises many questions, one being the effectiveness of divesting one's superannuation away from fossil fuels and mining only to invest in carbon being poured into the former habitats of our rapidly dwindling former wildlife. That's not great for the environmentalists or the animal lovers among us. The larger question, at least for us degrowthers, is the extent to which investment, even in supposedly green or ethical companies, is still part of the problem of feeding into the growth-based global market, which is unavoidable for Australians, as superannuation is obligatory. I've tried to get around this catch-22 by pegging my investment into the cash rate, but this is also not without its problems. We've all now heard of greenwashing, sustainability appropriation, etc. In the Season 3 episode where we talked to Dr Alex Borman, we had a pithy discussion of how difficult it is to tap out of the growth-based society and live in a degrowth dream until one has tapped into the system long enough to afford the off-grid house. There is always a tension around whether to try to fight the system, opt out of the system or work within it to make incremental changes. Given the pervasiveness of capitalism, it is almost impossible to opt out completely, so most of us will find ourselves somewhere in the shifting continuum of opting in or out. This segues into the guest for this show's episode, James Regulinski. James and his business partner, Zach Stein, run Carbon Collective, an environmental investment firm based in the USA. When I originally received this quest for an interview, I was intrigued in finding out more, but cautious on their behalf that they'd be entering into a conversation around the pitfalls of greenwashing within a global culture that demands infinite growth on a finite planet. 
To my delight, James is only too happy to take up the challenge and further demonstrates a very good understanding on degrowth and post-growth theory. Much of our discussion centres around the notion that green investment or divestment is a key component in a transition to a less destructive, exploitable economic system, but the work certainly doesn't stop and end there. In addition, I got a good insight into how investment consultancy works and how there are significant barriers around avoiding property development and construction. So that is definitely an eye-opener. Please stick around for James Regulinski from Carbon Collective. James, how are you today? Oh, it's been a beautiful day and I'm happy to be here talking with you, Michael. Firstly, tell us a little bit about yourself, your passions, what drives you, and what you do in your spare time when not working to save the environment. So I guess the most interesting story I like to tell people, it most connects into my various different passions and why I'm working on climate, was when I was 10, my parents moved me onto a sailboat. And so I grew up traveling around, sailing about the world, very much an international child, but also very connected to sort of the environmental reality like you are surrounded by the world's commerce and the oceans and all of their power and beauty and the trash that's in them and the um, incredible wildlife that lives there. So that definitely shaped my, my view of what my place was in the world. Some of my hobbies do still include getting out on the water, whether it be sailing or paddleboarding and swimming, as well as I, I like to uh, partner dance. So get me on the floor and some tango or um, blues and I'll be quite happy. Okay, we share a common thread. We both love uh, being in the water, but our differences are that I hate dancing, partly because I've got two left feet. Give us an example summary of Carbon Collective, if it's possible to put into an executive summary, and how this plays a role in our united attempts towards building a better future with a healthier environment. Carbon Collective came out of the observation from Project Drawdown that we did already have all the technologies we needed to transition to the economy to one that didn't rely on fossil fuels, which was a very hopeful thing to hear in 2017 when Zach and I were reading this and talking about what we could do about climate change. But one of the gaping problems that it's pretty easy to see when you start reading it is the amount of investment, the amount of resources or human effort that would need to be put into such a transition. Um, and how large that gap was from where people were actually putting their money, whether it be donations or investments, whatever it was, uh, it was it was quite phenomenal. So it was both hopeful, but also scary. We paired that with this second observation came out of a lot of interviews we had with like-minded folks who were concerned and we were asking them where they, where they put this anxiety around climate change. And a lot of the tasks and individual things that people tried to do were reoccurring tasks that they constantly had to do. They constantly had to make the decision, do I drive or do I bike? Do I eat vegetarian? Do I bring my reusable bag? And all of them felt very small in the face of the size of the problem we're trying to fix. And it required this constant mental drain. On top of every other decision you had to make during the course of the day, you also had to consider the environmental factors. And that's in a lot of ways a losing battle. So there are changes we can make in our lives that are larger changes, one-time changes that affect how we live our life far more, the kinds of cities we live in, the kinds of appliances or vehicles we drive. In our case, where, where we invest our money, who's in charge, who's steward of that money, and what do they believe in, what do they do with that money? These are things that we don't make decisions on every day. We make them every few years, every decade, but they have long, long tails in terms of positive or negative effects. And with that realization, we wanted to sort of change the conversation some to not just what could we collectively do amongst humanity, but what were the largest lever points that we as individuals could adjust this problem on? And we saw a big discrepancy from what was being presented as ethical investing, um, what people believed it was, and what was available. That is the heart of Carbon Collective, is that we wanted to provide an option that aligned with the goals of Project Drawdown on transitioning our economy to a post-fossil fuel world using the 
existing technologies that we, we know we have and allowing people to do that in a way, to invest in that way without having it to be a constant decision they had to make. So it's an online automatic investment advisor that puts your monies into, um, divests it from fossil fuels, puts it into climate solutions and uses the voting power that you have as a shareholder to help push companies along to move faster, even if they aren't the drivers of change themselves. Thank you for that executive summary. And indeed, um, when Zach approached me, um, I've never spoken to uh, investment consultants before, not for my personal life, um, nor for the podcasts. And I had a, a great time looking through the website. And I think your introduction video on that, James, much of the conversation in degrowth land, including PGAP, tends to be of an anti-capitalist, anti-globalisation, even sometimes anti-privatisation mindset. Mm -hmm. Therefore, some listeners may be gasping a little bit at the prospect of me interviewing, and I'm not sure if this is the correct term, you can correct me here, investment consultants. Mm -hmm. um, but before I'm accused of selling out and dating the enemy, I think it's good to qualify that not all private companies are made of the same cloth. Um, how would you compare one of the organisations you invest in up against one of the typical big evils in terms of environmental credentials, social justice factors, etc.? There's a, a lot in that. So I want to maybe reassure your listeners and um, say I fell into this particular dark path via a fairly honest one. I came, my background was engineering. Zach and I are still very much outsiders in this space, which is pretty apparent whenever we try to do something with people who've been on the industry for 25 plus years. And so uh, I might not have good answers for all of your questions today uh, because there are things that I struggle with myself and try to understand. Um, and I say on maybe on a high level, I don't see the end goal of degrowth and what Zach and I are working on in transition in the economy as mutually exclusive. There is this question of how do we get from point A to point B? And it's not always obvious. Now, we might not be on the right path in terms of getting there, but we think it is a valid path for getting there as we help deal with some of the impending environmental elements. Other folks can work on other elements of the problem. But coming back to it, in the climate, in, uh, climate Solutions Fund in particular, which is our collection of stocks that we see based off Project Drawdown as being active, actively building solutions to climate change, I'd say they run the gamut, gamut. There are companies in there that I am sure all of us would be less than impressed with if you looked at it on all aspects, because we do live in a, what was the term? I think it is a, a wartime capitalist society, whether we're actually at war or not. That is the type of extractive capitalist, sometimes also called colonial capitalism. And it's hard to not, the companies themselves are not inherently evil, and I would argue, but the whole system that which it's predicated on has that unsustainability baked into it in a way that forces us to do things that are not in our collective best interest. And there are some companies in the same solution list, which are, I would say, doing the best that you can do in that in those confines. In the solutions, um, Climate Solutions Fund, we have solutions that run the gamut from clean energy, which is sort of the classic things you see, to companies that make alternatives to meats, to recycling refrigerants, to landfill methane capture, to recycling other products, to building automation. These are all companies that are building those technologies today. These are not claims that the companies are making in the future or what we see a lot of is in the greenwashing space, which is making some accounting claims, buying carpet offsets to say that you're gonna to get to net zero by 2030, which is a really common claim. Those CEOs might not even be around then, so it might not matter what claim they make because it's gonna be their predecessors job to actually implement that so they can make it with, um, with abandon. Um, these are things that these companies are actually building today. And we see all of those technologies collectively getting to a place where we can, our environment can pull more CO2 out of the atmosphere than it releases every year. That does not mean that we solve all environmental problems doing that. It does not mean that we solve all equity problems doing that. And while we do have additional filters, ethical filters on our portfolios, because we think it's critical that you don't invest in private prisons and arms manufacturing, industrial animal farming. We think there's no, there's no moral ground to stand on there at all. We do see that if we don't 
work on the climate crisis with a certain level of seriousness, a certain level of what is the fastest way we can possibly address this problem, we're going to have to deal with an incredible amount of strife and human suffering. And working on it in the way that we are is not mutually exclusive, as I said before, with other folks' approaches. Excellent. And I think you also raise a good point there about um, not letting go of the good in pursuit of the perfect. Um, I think that's a lot of trouble that a lot of idealists get into. So, you know, for example, it's easy to see, oh, you're working with green capitalism or whatever, but also we do have to work at least for a few more years in the predominant system that we are and and how much we do that I, I suppose and whether what we do is works cooperatively with other modalities of activism and advocacy uh, it, it is a great point that you do raise so speaking about pursuit of the good but not the perfect um, how do you vet suitability of companies and organizations what criteria do they need to meet in order for you to recommend them yeah so i'm, I'm going to talk mostly about the climate solutions fund because i think it's the most interesting and sort of highlights our thinking around the problem in particular because a lot of issues it's really easy to either be dogmatic or write off a solution or a company based off one element. So we actually are not trying to pick from like a classic investment advisor would say, I'm going to tell you what the best company to invest is from a fundamental economic perspective. They're going to tell you what their price to earning ratio is. So how much, what the price of the stock is to how much it's making. And they'll use a bunch of economic fiddling to tell you what the best company is. Um, and then you had post sort of that era where that was the main uh, modality of investing. You had the bogglehead invest in everything, index investing. There, you're all, you're going to be better than picking individual stocks. We have a blended approach, but instead of looking at the fundamental economics, we're looking at how does this solution fit into solving uh, or moving us away from a dependence on fossil fuels. And as I said before, that doesn't solve all problems, but it's a pretty big pressing problem that it addresses. And so we took Project Drawdown, which is an open source project that was done by several hundred scientists and engineers. Probably many of your listeners are familiar with it. Um, and they ran through a model, and this is again, looking at CO2 alone um, and other greenhouse gases, sorry, uh, but not necessarily other things that are important from an environmentalist perspective, but it's looking at climate change in particular in these gases. What are all the things that we could do today that would get us to a point of net zero or not net zero, but where we're pulling more CO2 out of the atmosphere than we're releasing every year. Um, and so we looked at each of these technology groups and we said, what companies are actually building these today? What companies aren't talking about future green solutions or reducing their own internal energy, but what are building individual technologies that fit in that? And then we look at those companies and we look at what their revenue source is. Is their revenue source primarily from that activity? Is it primarily from oil companies of some sort. And you'll be surprised at how much overlap there sometimes is. Companies that ostensibly are doing something good that a lot of their revenue is coming from sources that are not aligned with the solution or these solutions. Um, and sometimes we have other filters. So I talked about transitioning and I think utilities is a really good example of this. Utilities can be a catalyst for changing over our energy system. They can be pushing ahead of what uh, states in our case in the US or the national government is mandating, and they can be more invested in renewables than anything else, but they might have legacy uh, fossil fuel operations. So what are they doing with those? Do they have a track record of closing them down? Are they closing down all their coal plants, for example? So these are some of the things that we look at. Are you on, is the utility, if it makes it into the portfolio, is it on a trajectory to be truly free of fossil fuels by 2030, or is it just uh, making some claim or greenwashing. And again, we dig into all the numbers on that and have a rules-based approach. And if it meets the, all of our criteria, then it gets included as a transitionary utility company. Now, there are also pure plays. There are companies, Yieldco's in particular. Yieldco might be a U.S. particular investment vehicle, but uh, they are only in solar and wind, for example. And so they don't have any of this, this baggage. But we consider all of them and invest in everyone who meets the criteria, not picking out the economic winners and losers. It also has to hold those filters that we talked about before, about not being invested in private prisons, arms. So that's the, the high level. 
you'll notice some things I didn't go into there. I didn't say that we, we look at their track record of ethical behavior on a whole wide spectrum of things. And that's very popular to talk about ESG. Um, we're fairly critical of ESG because it was a tool developed particularly for mitigating the financial risk associated with environmental, social, and governance, which is very different from how good a company is or whether that company is part of envisioning it, like being part of a transition. And I think it's really important to remember or think about money as has the power to be an organizing force. Now, when you involve an assumption of growth into it and you put bake in interest, it can become a, a very caustic, negative, harmful tool. And I think a lot of the environmental harm we see comes from that assumption around growth and around the expectation of returns in that form and the enforcement of it. But it also, when we invest, we're imagining a different future. We are saying, what do we believe about the future? What kind of world are we going to be living in? And we are placing our money in creating that world. And as we collectively agree on a new world, we start creating that new world. And that's the that's that glimmer of hope when I talk about it's a struggle, but I'm still doing this work. It's seeing that organizing force of money as a potential for how do we solve some of the problems that we've gotten ourselves into. It sounds like you've uh, put a lot of thought into this, James, the Carbon Collective. So <laughs> big hats off to you for that. Um, I did want to qualify my last question with an Australian experience that I have. Now, the super Australian superannuation industry, it's like a type of investment initiative of retirement funds um, that I'm sure plays out similarly, at least in other, some other countries. I know that about 10 years ago, I was friends with organisers from 350.org and uh, I was kind of encouraged to be part of a divestment campaign in which take your retirement funds away from the big evil banks and put them in other banks or other in investment funds and change your bank accounts anyway and, and things like that and to the point where we're all lined up on a big oval uh, hundreds of a spelling divest and a helicopter was flying above and took a photo and we all felt like we were really important and making lots of changes which I, I guess we were to some extent but this was before I discovered that there are several ethical and cruelty-free super funds out there, retirement funds in Australia, on the premise that they invest in uh, met environmental or social justice criteria. However, it is extraordinarily difficult to find an Australian super organisation that allows you not to invest in bulk construction uh, organisations such as Stocklands or Mervac. Now, both these organisations have a terrible legacy of mowing down former wilderness or character neighbourhoods to replace them with either car-dependent sprawl or prefab concrete high-rise. I mean, you know, the equivalent um, companies in America basically make your average Atlanta suburb. Um, when queried, the super funds will often say that they invest in property developer giants because they have an eco-design portfolio or they plan to one day do more eco-friendly development. So I know shares in the US experience is a bit different from um, retirement super funds. Nevertheless, how does Carbon Collective avoid this shaky baseline or holding um, the bizarre assumption held by many that large-scale, poorly-built property development is actually okay? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and this goes into like, what steps do we view, what the path to where we're going is and what's, what do we work with within the system or where do things need to be torn down or changed? Um, so on the superannuation, the closest thing we have, um, we have a lot of 401ks, which are, are I guess, our equivalent. Um, there are some pension plans left, but not many. And there are similar requirements. And there are laws in the US, a lot of laws, in fact, around um, if you're going to be an investment advisor, which we are, because that's the only way we can advise on people's investments, um, we have a fiduciary responsibility. And fiduciary responsibility is a really slippery term. But as far as I can pin down, it is, are you doing what everyone else is doing? <laughs> it's a little tongue in cheek, but if you if you look at like what the actual law is around what is responsible from like responsible thing to do with your money, you're kind of basing it off of historical things, you're basing it off of what everyone else's best practices are. And if you do something wildly off the rail, then people can call you out as not being responsible with their money. 
But that also means it's very limited in what you can advise in terms of transitioning someone away from certain things. Um, and so to that extent, I'm going to give the same incredibly frustrating answer that you just criticized those some of those companies I'm saying is there are things we're working on in the future that are going to address some of these concerns that we have not implemented. And that's a shitty answer. And it's a shitty answer on two fronts. One is shitty because we want to be doing better and we're not. And the second is because it's so damn hard to do better. Now, what's an example of a way that we could meet both the fiduciary responsibility and maybe address some of this concern around development, for example. A, a thought that we play around a lot with is a, a real estate investment vehicle, which is one of the things in a modern portfolio. I know this is all jargony and it's really dumb that it's jargony because mostly the jargon is used to exclude people from the industry and make it seem like it's more important and you need a financial advisor to participate. So I apologize there. <laughs> but Modern portfolio theory, which is one of those accepted fiduciary ways that you can manage someone's money, talks about these different sleeves that you have to have a diversified portfolio so that you are not exposed to a lot of risk. And real estate is one of those. It's more lowly correlated with other stocks. So it's good for your overall correlation. So I'm assuming that in this superannuation, these funds that you're sort of required to be invested in, that they are saying, look, to have a diversified fund, we need to have real estate. And the ethical ones we're going to invest your money in are, you know, the ones who have some sort of plan. And a lot of time, as I said, my criticism of ESG before is a lot of time they base the data off of plans and reports that the companies say about things they're going to do, not necessarily the things they are doing. And so they get a good score, so they get included in the ESG fund. And we see this all the time. We see oil companies and other foul players in ESG funds, which is one of the frustrating things about the space. But on that fiduciary side, saying you invested in real estate, they'll say that's a good thing. And we found the best real estate investment that we can. That is often just a replication of what we've seen before. Um, there, I don't know of anybody participating in the real estate space from the investment level, which is saying, like, how are we using real estate? How are we imagining real estate playing a role in a more equitable and just society? Instead, you get in what happens in the U.S., which is investment firms see it as a growth opportunity. They buy up blocks of property in New York. They evict a bunch of people. They renovate them, which is barely a renovation at all. And then they charge 3x the rent. Um, and that goes into the teacher's pension fund in Texas, for example. Um, Blackstone, not Blackrock, but Blackstone is notorious for this. Do they okay. sometimes have vines growing up the apartments and then call it Green Grove <laughs> and, and then charge six times the rent? Even better, yeah. They put they yeah. stick on a bamboo decal on the on surfaces and uh, and say it's renewable. So what do we imagine as being like a more positive on the investment front? By the way, very nascent stages. This is something we're still exploring, but it's something, it's a question that we have. Can you take the role as someone who is investing in properties? Can you both invest in properties and imagine um, a transition of those properties to something that is truly more sustainable? Answer might be no, but things that we have talked about is um, a lot of building, uh, buildings are one of the largest sources or consumers of heating and electricity in the US. It's very often the, the failure to transition existing buildings instead of, so one approach is, oh, you tear down um, forests and, or you tear down old neighborhoods and you bulldoze them and you build new buildings and you call it eco, you use more energy efficient stuff potentially. Um, and you say that's a win. However, we want to be using existing buildings as much as we can because of a lot of embedded energy and materials and resources and time that's already put into those buildings. So if we can bring those buildings to use less energy, to be more efficient, um, either through things as simple as better insulation to renewable energy to better glass, sometimes building automation, though I know that sometimes that can also lead to a, a disconnect from the natural world. You can imagine that those buildings would be less impactful than the thing that you described earlier. Um, but to do that, the investors actually have to be aligned with the people living in the building, and that doesn't happen. Most of the time, those investors who invest in the real estate fund, use this example I was using before, teacher's pension fund, they don't care. They care about the return. They care that this help diversifies their portfolio. They don't particularly care that the residents are paying high utility fees or anything about the residents, frankly. And so that disconnect, that further separation, that isolation, and that's what money does really well, or investments can often do really well, is it separates you, it, it sort of decontextualizes you. It means that that investor doesn't care. And so 
I think to be effective at building any kind of ethical investment, if we're going to be effective at this, it's going to be if we recontextualize it, we bring back some of that, those elements of that these are actual people living in these buildings, that these are actual physical spaces in the world, that this used to be a forest at one point, and to build more, you would have to cut down more forest. Those are some of my thoughts on the interplay on those two. Um, but I, I, I got a little bit far afield on real estate in particular, and your question maybe was more broad about pension funds in general. No, I think it was good to focus on real estate because that's been uh, my personal bugbear, uh, at least with the superannuation journey that I've been on in Australia, that you seem to be hemmed into, regardless of how ethical it is, investing on wide-scale bad property development, mainly of buildings with a shelf life of, a, you know, several months until people get their returns and then the prefab concrete kind of oozes into the cheap glue and like we're seeing everywhere in the Anglosphere. In Florida, the, the collapse of a building, et cetera, Yes, yeah. You only had to say Florida, and I could just yeah, already the, the disaster was already striking yeah. in my yeah. <laughs> Prefab concrete in 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 the middle of a swamp. What could go wrong? Thinking yeah. <laughs> How do environmentally minded companies and their investors get around the phenomena of greenwashing? I, I think you've you've spoken to this, but let's really you know get our hands onto this. Um, or the Jevons paradox that has historically affected many mm. well-meaning green tech initiatives, or what many in the degrowth movement often scoff at the oxymorons of green growth or sustainable growth um, as if endless growth in a finite planet of stuff could ever be sustainable uh, long term. Any capital-based company that makes a product would still need to be manipulating the natural world in order to do so and be pressured to produce this product on even larger scales to satisfy shareholders I would assume, I know it's perhaps a bit different if it's for services or for non-tangible products. So the phenomena of greenwashing, I think there could be tons of research papers written about, about the various different types of greenwashing that have existed um, and people are still still engaged with. But you're talking about the the element of of degrowth and like you can't have sustainable growth because it's always something in the physical world that you end up manipulating and that's all finite. I think that that is, I will mostly just agree with that. But they were talking about often end states. When we talk about the limits of, of exponential growth, it's like we live on a finite planet, we're going to use this all up at some point. Um, and it's very easy to say like that's distant in the future. And I think in Donut Economics, um, Kate Rayworth talks about how do we do a soft landing? <laughs> The plane. That was this plane though. We, we took off. It was really exciting. You know, we got to have all this cool growth without thinking about any of the negative externalities. And then we're flying in the air and we're like, well, we're flying. We can't touch down because we didn't build landing gears and we're going to crash into this mountain and we're all going to die. And that's like the only, the only scenario we can imagine of not flying, but we have limited fuel on this plane. So how do we have a gentle landing? I, I think about that a lot. And I think about like, what areas do we continue to grow and change and shift? A lot of economic growth is, again, growth that has been devoid of its contact, like pulled out of its fenced away from that cultural, environmental, spiritual context. Um, and then you get to say you make a profit because you've kind of separated it and monetized it. So maybe a lot of the activities that we, we do in the future are sort of in rehabilitating and regrowing those that wealth. Um, so to speak, through all the interactions, human interactions. And it's not all economic in sense. And we just expand how we think about prosperity. I, it's hard for me to imagine that world because I grew up in one that was so radically different from that. And so what I've been focused on um, and I think a lot about in my work is what does that transition look like? Is there any way that we can do that? I'm, I'm just caveating my my answers when I think about greenwashing and is there anything that companies can do that are val is valuable and sort of just transforming the natural world? Um, and I, I think there is. I think that the the shifting away from the status quo is necessary because the status quo is incredibly harmful right now. And I don't see a way that we turn it off. I don't see a way that we just flip a switch and shut down every factory and every coal mine and every energy power plant and every building development project. Um, it might be possible. Um, and I, I really hope maybe one of your listeners is brilliant enough to make that occur. 
Um, but in, in the world where it's not possible to turn it off immediately, there's a question of how do we get from where we are, which is bad. And we talk about this a lot in the lithium mining um, operations. Lithium mining operations are, are bad. I will not defend them as a good thing for the planet or like good in like a microcosm, often environmentally harmful. But coal mining is also really awful. And powering our current or, or oil operations um, extraction is really awful. So if we have to do, if we could do a less bad right now to transition ourselves away from something that is also causing massive wildlife depletion, health problems to people, air pollution, global climate change, like all of these things, um, then it might be part of that soft landing. And so when I think about, and so going, coming back to the greenwashing question, which is where we started. So you have this one, it's like, maybe there are, maybe it's worth diving into these alternative scenarios of what is less bad and what is more bad. I think that companies need to be honest about where we are and where we're going. Um, and I, I think things like when Apple talks about buying carbon offsets, they start by saying, we're, we have a plan to get to net to zero by 2030. And you look at the plan and most of it is in buying carbon offsets. So show a 50% reduction in their supply chain, energy efficiency and material efficiency, et cetera. So improvements in the recycling, et cetera. But you look at it by, by the dates they're talking about, it's mostly through carbon credits. Carbon credits, you can't expand to solve this problem. Like you, there, there aren't enough in, in like tree planting, for example, ignoring that tree planting as a, a carbon sequestration method is actually really fraught. Like we don't have a good idea that we can just plant a bunch of trees and it will be a fully functioning ecosystem that's pulling down more CO2 in a reasonable amount of time or that those forests will actually be protected for the entirety. And there's a problem of the upfront accounting. They get the benefit right now, but the forest actually takes a hundred years to sequester that and they haven't really defended those forests for that. Ignoring all of that complexity, for all of the economic activity we do, there aren't enough places to plant enough trees to do this. Like we don't have the, the kind of carbon sinks in the current world as it's set up right now. So it's disingenuous for Apple to say, we're gonna invest all this money in it and it will be a legitimate offset for the activities we're doing. So the question is, what is a legitimate thing for someone to say as far as not be greenwashing? And my answer to that has been, what are your what is your superpower as a company? What is the thing you do really well? And are you aligning that with solving one of these key problems in the world. And if you're not, then I don't really care about what your green plan is. We're, we're all in a little bit of a choose your own adventure, aren't we? Like <laughs> lithium or gas or oil. And it's almost like a, this of a <laughs> choose your own adventure, but and more of a choose your own catch 22 sometimes. But um, mm -hmm. do you think it is possible to be a degrowth advocate and have at least an uneasy alliance with the capitalist world of investment as, as speculation. Well, it sounds like you're that kind of person anyway. Um, so, so therefore I'm interested to what extent is there a conflict of interest where companies and shareholders need the company to be competitive, which often can equate to never ending that dispatch into the production frontier. And does this necessarily have to clash with steady state and post growth ideals, which suggests there needs to be at least ceiling limits on expanding scales of production? So the first part of your question is, I personally have a uneasy alliance relationship with, with both of these. I'm not well read or smart enough to know of like, what are the really feasible end states um, except that they often look maybe more like gift economies and are, are have more interpersonal um, engagement, that everything has not been reduced to a, a, a form of economic exchange that, as you said, pushes us to more and more growth and thus feeling that constant anxiety of <laughs> being one step ahead of the, the axemen, so to speak. With that in mind, a lot of our clients are feeling this tension too. Like you don't escape it. And people who are advocates of degrowth I don't know of any who have actually gotten to a point where they exist in a little bubble that is, in fact, degrowth and where that has mm. a meaningful effect on others. So we're all, we all have to find some alliance or some balance. Now you can rail against it and make big claims about not participating. But for the most part, I, I don't know people who don't participate in some way, whether it is through their, the work that they do, or how they get around or how they um, even engage with their loved ones. So much has been privatized and commoditized to the point where doing the things that make us human often 
the important things, the rituals that matter to us still intersect us with uh, this feeling of being trapped or the reality of being trapped in this growth economics. I guess my challenge to anyone who's who says that they've fully, they're fully skeptical and they, they don't believe in all is like, okay, yes, but how are you engaging in the world today? Um, and so the folks who, who invest with us often say things like, I don't want to invest in all of these things. I don't know how I'm going to retire. Like, I don't know how I'm ever going to step off. And retire is a euphemism for step off this treadmill of always trying to keep up with the massive amount of debt that we're all, that's hanging over all of our heads. Yeah. Whether that's your own personal debt or societal debts or ecological or et cetera. Again, I don't think there are great answers. I think there are some better answers and I think there are some more hopeful answers. And those more, more hopeful answers come when we imagine, like we do the work to imagine what this degrowth economy is. We do the work to imagine what a post-fossil fuel company world looks like and the, what, what some of the, the steps from here to there could be. An easy alliance, I think, is important for everyone to hold. And these issues are really complicated. If you can't acknowledge that they're really complicated and getting there is going to be hard and tricky, then I think you're kind of maybe radically simplifying things to the point where you won't it won't be useful to most people. So one of the things we, we really pride ourselves in and try to do a lot at Carbon Collective is acknowledge that there is gray space in here, that there aren't easy answers, and us pretending there are easy answers is doing everyone a disservice. And how do we deal with that? Well, we, we try to be really honest about what we do and don't do um, and where we are in all of this space. And then we publish all of, all of our holdings, how we got there, our methodologies, why we think it's important, and in doing so, respect that people can make their decision about it and can sort of engage in the complexity and the ambiguity to the ability that they need to or want to, which I think more people should do. If you're going to be an ethical, if you're going to claim to be an ethical investing in any case, you've got to show your work because so much of this has been behind paywalls for so long that it's hard to really believe that folks who are, are claiming they're doing ethical work are actually doing it. Um, and if we need to improve or change what that looks like, you don't know if they are, if they are taking those steps or not. Just thinking about what you said about, you know, no one can be a Puritan degrofer. I remember one guest that I had a few episodes ago and we were talking about the people who say, oh my God, I'm so degrofer. I even have like an ecological self-sustaining house and I've tapped out of society. Oh, how did you afford that house? Oh, you know, I worked as a you know, finance investor. Well, there you go. You had to tap into the system mm -hmm. um, for a while in order to tap out. And even when you say you tap out, like humans are interconnected. There is no tapping out. And when you look on the ecological front, there is no escape there. So, I mean, if we're going to get on this sort of soft landing approach, like we have to ramp down both the, the anxiety of how are you going to retire, like our capacity to support those people and support ourselves to meet all of those needs, <laughs> that needs to be growing with the rate at which we're lowering the return on investments that everyone currently is depending on for for getting there getting to that promised land of not having to work 80 hours a week or whatever 80 hours like it's heading that way isn't it i mean i went to college by the way i went to an engineering college and it was a point of pride when people pulled you know pulling all-nighters and working 80 hours a week and having a course load that was insane like it gets instilled in us really early and there's just no way that that's actually how we want to be spending our lives that that is actually a meaningful beautiful way to spend our existence but it was a, a thing we bragged about and i i look back at that and I'm, I'm now baffled i remember being at uni and calling dexamphetamines the engineering students best friends <laughs> uh, do you believe that growth can be decoupled from environmental exploitation or do you believe that infinite growth in a finite planet is a thing Regardless, and is there anything that the green marketplace can do to uh, reverse these trends or make the idea of decoupling a uh, reality that so far has struggled mm. to manifest? Mm. I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but degrowth, like when we talk about growth and degrowth, I think two things. One thing a lot of people who are maybe less familiar hear degrowth and they're like, oh, we need to be shrinking. Like degrowth is the opposite of growth as opposed to like, orthogonal to that yes. is, is a true decoupling is a saying that like the, the activities we participate in the richness of the life that we create is from activities that shouldn't be commoditized and 
commoditization is that sort of, as I said before, that separation of something from the complex so social, ecological, and um, and maybe spiritual, depending on your viewpoint of these things, web that item or living being or whatever was connected to. We, we separate it from that, commoditize it, and then make it something that we can call GDP and can call growth. So growth is in a lot of ways a mental, as a mindset mm. about how we view the world and what we do. A forest is not growth, but when we cut it down and turn it into boards, it's growth. Um, as you said before, we've, we've just rearranged the matter in a different way and then all agreed that it was growth. From that level, like, yeah, I can totally imagine a world where we decouple the economy from growth because it's a very narrow view of what growth is that we have currently. Does green investing play a role in this? I think ultimately it will have to. I don't yet know how. Uh, I've been reading sacred economics recently and pondering on that and thinking about how we, we move away from usury. But it's baked into that fiduciary responsibility that we have currently. Bonds are incredibly important from like the classic investment advisor standpoint on what the responsible thing to do with someone's money is. And baked into it is this idea that it's going to grow and that growth is protected by legal courts and police and threat of violence by states um, enforced on other countries, et cetera. Um, so it's hard to, again, we would have to come up with a solution for that in the long run to get to this, this state of, of money being a facilitator of change and, and human richness and experience or a device for helping us through collective action. Um, you could imagine money being the facilitator of all these things, but not a, a one that has baked into it this idea that you have to grow and that growth has to come at the expense of these fencing off of the commons, if you will. That was kind of me dodging the answer, but you also asked me four questions in one and it was the best I could do. I'm often accused of asking four questions in one. Luckily for you, that's the end of my uh, grilling questions so far. You've done very well. Um, and now a nice open platter question to end us off with. And what are your personal visions for a better and more sustainable future? And feel free to bring in some of the ideas from um, spiritual economics into that as well. My friends for the last probably 10 years now have all been saying, I'm really trying to build community. Like that is one of the most common things I hear when I ask people like, what, what do they want? What are they looking for? I say it too. It's such a, both a beautiful and a terrifying thing to have that be the common thing that everyone's looking for. So I, I guess the, the shortest part of the answer is that I want my life to be more intertwined with all the lives around me. I want to, have the work that I do be more connected with the people in physical, like, but this is not just a like online community element. Like I actually want to know more, like when I imagine a better world, when I imagine this like bright, shiny future where we're in the most cynical way, all driving electric cars and um, drinking out of bio recycled plastics. But more seriously, when I imagine this, like, you know, in, in the next 10 or 15 years, if I retired at that point, what that retirement would look like, it would be that I was doing all the things building. I still transforming. I think that we, we talk about like, you know, building often in the growth context is like a bad thing, but I get a lot of satisfaction out of changing matter around. I think it can be a really beautiful thing, either whether it be art or whether it be something as functional as making my own bed. I think connecting to that making process is deeply satisfying to me and sharing that with other people has been really satisfying. Being able to gift the things I make has been very satisfying. And so I, and making meals with people has been satisfying for me, dancing or sailing, et cetera, with folks, but it's always with other people. And there's this, like, I'm imagining this and in the background, I can hear sort of the background chatter and the laughter and the, and the games that are played, et cetera, and the food that's being cooked. So I guess to me, when I envision this better future, <sighs> The connectedness of people to other people is, is central in all of that. And so I think that if I was to say, how do I, how do I reconcile the investment part of my life and this future part of my life, it would be the, to the ability that I can reconnect, replug in that abstract, dead, separated, disconnected investment to forms that are generative and are rebuilding, are opening up some of those commons back. Um, and letting people flourish in that way.
Beautiful vision, James. Thank you so much. Uh, we've come to the end and I just want to say when Post Growth Australia podcast started two years ago, if anyone said in two years time, you're going to be talking to a uh, financial investment consultant, I would have laughed wildly. And if they said you would have had a very constructive conversation on degrowth, I would have been quite puzzled. But um, uh, thank you so much, James, for bucking the trend. Uh, my only question for you is, do you have to go to um, financial investment consultation conventions and <laughs> do, do you get ostracised at them for having a moral compass? Uh, I have been... COVID, we, we started during COVID and we've been really lucky to sort of stick to a remote first company, which has meant I've gotten to turn down so many conventions by saying, I would love to come, but the cost to the environment of flying to your convention just does not, does not align with our values. And that has been satisfying on so many levels. <laughs> that must feel so satisfied to say that message. Uh, yeah, if, if, if only there's like a smug font that you could yeah. choose or sarcastic like, font. Yeah. All, all caps is yelling. Where's my, I'm just super <laughs> smug font. Where's that? Yeah. <laughs> if uh, listeners would like to find out more about Carbon Collective, uh, where can they go and how can they say hi? And I assume, would the service be mostly for US residents and not so much Australian listeners? Yeah, unfortunately, we're still pretty young and we haven't been able to do any work internationally yet. Um, you can join our mailing list. We talk about cool things and what we're up to. And if that ever changes, you get notified. You can find all of this at carboncollective.co. There is a, a button at the top that says talk to a human if you want to drop me a line. Um, or you can always send me an email, my name at carboncollective.co. Um, and we, as I said before, we publish, we try to publish everything. We're a small team yet, so it's not always out there, but we have guides to sustainable investing. We have how we selected companies for our climate solution fund and lots more besides. So check out the website if you're at all curious. Excellent, James. If I was living in the US, I'd start investing with you tomorrow. And this is coming from someone who hasn't invested yet. So, um, And we have American listeners too, so I'm sure one or two of them will say hi soon. I love um, it. Thank you so much, James. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Till next time. You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast. We just spoke with James Regulinski from Carbon Collective. Where do you stand on financial investment and superannuation as an Australian? And how do you reconcile this with your views on degrowth? Send us a message on our website on the contact form. Please share this and other episodes of PGAP among your family, friends and enemies. Don't discriminate. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Be part of the movement and get the post-growth message out there into the mainstream where it so critically belongs. This episode is made possible in part with the kind support of Sustainable Population Australia. Any opinions and legacies of our guests are exclusively theirs and may not always intersect with those of PGAP or SPA. Mark Allen will join us again next episode where we return back home for some more interviews in southwestern Australia. Until next time, folks. Until then. <laughs>